As the worlds of culture, storytelling, and technology collide, so too do the best and brightest minds within them. Welcome to Select Conversations, a podcast series brought to you by United Masters. This episode features super producer and art collector Swiss Beats and Steve Stout, the founder of United Masters and marketing agency Translation. They'll discuss the future of artist independence and provide creative entrepreneurs with gems they'll need to navigate the industry. Are you looking for a great option to bank or invest? Ally Financial is a leading digital financial services company with passionate customer service and innovative financial solutions. They are relentlessly focused on doing it right and being a trusted financial services provider to both customers and communities. Get with Ally to make the most of your money so you can save, invest, and spend on the things that matter to you. Go to ally.com for more information. That's A-L-L-Y.com. Welcome to SelectCon 2. Um, this is Fireside Chat with the one and only uh, Godfather of Harlem, the, the Grammy-nominated, got streets named after him in Harlem, the Harlem, the Harvard Business School graduate, one and only the true Renaissance man, Swiss Beats, man. Very good friend of mine. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for this. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you know, you. Stouts I, of Steve. The Stouts of Steve. <laughs> I've had the uh, pleasure of knowing Swiss for since he was 17, 18. Um, so it's been a minute. It's probably 2007. Uh, we worked together with Interscope and the Rough Riders. Um, what, what year was that? 2008? It doesn't, doesn't matter. It was, I was uh, waiting for that. Um, well, I've known you before that. That's right. Damn. Swiss, damn it. Oh, yeah. I've known you for 25 years. 20, 24, 25 years, man. Um, and Look better than you ever you know, did, though. That's the good part. I, yeah, well, you know what? You're right there. You look fat. We Swiss and I had a conversation earlier about how we both never put shoe polish in our beds. We just let the gray go. <laughs> let that thing fly, man. <laughs> Embrace the legacy. We're the two. We are not going to put shoe polish in our bed. We swear to you, if you see our bed getting extra dark, that means we did something wrong. <laughs> so Swiss, Swiss, I want to. I want to start. Um, you know, this is a fireside chat, and I want to talk to you about a few things, really leading to to verses and everything you stand for today, with uh, no commission and and just the way you approach yourself as a creative entrepreneur. But I want to go back to the very beginning. You as a producer, Rough Riders, tell me how you got started as a producer in the music business, uh, the, the critical moment, and when your career took off. Um, the critical moment when my career took off as a producer was actually understanding what was the job of a producer. Because I always wanted to be a DJ. I wanted to be like Kid Capri. I wanted to be like Ron G. I wanted to be like 1200 Assassin. I wanted to, you know, the producers wasn't really the thing. You know, the MC was the thing and the DJ was the thing. The producer wasn't even somebody you would look up to um, on the front stage like that. So I never even knew that I would ever become a producer because I was just so into what I was doing as a DJ. And I remember making the intros to my to my mixtapes 
and making an intro to your mixtape, you had to take loops and come up with the beat for your selected artist to rap before uh, the mixtape started. You know, Doo-Wop was the master at that. He had the bounce squad and everything. So I was like, let me take some guys from my school and let them rap on on the beginning of my mixtapes. And then um, everybody was giving me compliments on the beats and that I was looping up for the mixtape. I still didn't put this as producing. I thought it was just making an intro for my mixtape. And then I just started making intros for so many people mixtapes that I didn't even have to make mixtapes no more to make money. I was just selling the intros to mixtapes. And then um, people was like, man, that's producing. I remember Wash saying that. I remember Chad Elliott saying that. Uh, Sheik from the locks at the time also, just when he was warlocked, he was like, man, that's producing. And um, I remember uh, Wah <laughs> gave Irv Gotti his first MP and he was like, yo, I'm going to give you the studio equipment, but you got to teach my nephew how to make beats. You know, he wanted, I want him to start, I want him to start to be a producer. And Irv used to be like, all right, no problem. He used to come in there and do like fast, fast finger pressing shit with the buttons. Um, mm-hmm. I couldn't keep up with him. So I just figured out I had to uh, do it myself. But um, it started like that. And then I got a phone call from my aunt to come up to Yonkers, to come up to New York for the summer. I was in Atlanta. I got deported from New York <laughs> to Atlanta at that time. Mm-hmm. But for the summer, my aunt Siobhan was like, yo, you should come up to New York. Your uncles are starting a label called Rough Riders. And you're the only person in the, in, in the family that, that, taken, that takes the music serious. You should come up for the summer. And I went up for the summer and the rest was history. So that was really the defining moment going to New York on that summer. Mind you, I'm making a lot of money in Atlanta. I'm DJing that atrium. I'm DJing that Club Flavors. I got a gig at this place called SOL where I was the only hip-hop DJ, but Renaissance would DJ there. Waggy T would DJ there. And how, I did the how old were you, Swiss? How old were you doing this, man? I was about like 16. Yeah. I remember you were so, 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 so young. I mean, you know, one of the early that just talking about being an entrepreneur and being an entrepreneur, um, you have to be able to ignore the noise. You have to be able to um, deal with the haters and deal with all the headwinds and keep going forward. And I remember when you came, you know, back to New York and you were making beats, the beats were hard. And every producer that was out there, the older guys, was like, oh, this kid is just taking the beats from the Casio. He's not really talented. That's not dope. Those are already sounds that are already loaded up in the Casio. So why would we take him seriously and give him the name producer? He's just taking music from there. And they thought it was going to run out quick. Um, I mean, I'm sure as a young man, you remember that, um, hearing that kind of stuff. And how did that affect you on your journey? One, the Casio thing got out of hand. I even heard I got sued by Casio one time. Um, the Ca- I never really rocked with a Casio like that, you know, but it was just like something that was making other producers feel better about themselves, you know. But it's just like you could sample from a, from a record, but I can't make music, whether it's, even if it's a, it's a preset, because I got a couple of beats as presets that was pre-programmed. Um, uh, which I want from Eve is a pre free program and um down bottom with drag is a pre program. I just 
I just liked the shit and I just did it. You know, I mm-hmm. didn't care what nobody said because it was just knocking. And when you get those, when you get that equipment, you could use every part of it. You know, that's just like saying you're going, you're not going to sample the breakbeat on the James Brown record. Yeah, right. The breakbeat is there. I'm going to take the breakbeat and I'm going to add what I want to add. It's all a part of creativity. But I just, um, you know, it was just so new at that time to even be playing with synth. Like, producers weren't even playing with synthesized sounds at that time. Um, everybody was was messing with the samples. And I got tired of messing with samples because I tried the samples first, but then Puffer had the sample. You know, all these people had the sample. And I started feeling like they stealing from me when they never even heard what I sampled. Yeah, you know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. I'm like, man, they yeah. stealing my stuff. And then so... I remember I told Eric McCain from Too Hype, I was like, man, let me borrow one of your keyboards because I don't want to sample no more because every time I get somebody wanting my track, somebody else come with the sample. And so I'm like, you know what? If I, if I, if I make my own sounds, they can't copy that. They can't trace that. They don't even know how I'm going to come. And so, you know, I, I got um, a keyboard from Eric McCain from Too Hype, the original the lead singer from Too Hype. And um, the journey started from there with with the synthesized sound. And you and, and and you use synthesized sound on band from TV. Yeah, that's all originals. Yep. Yeah, that's when I started catching the that swag. That was crazy. Right. That was just <laughs> but the crazy, crazy part. Band, that band from TV was just the intro to the beat. It was another beat that really dropped. Nori and them didn't want me to uh, switch the beat. They just been writing to the to the intro. I was like, damn, yeah. I like it, but when is the beat going to drop? They never let the beat drop. They just use the intro. So I guess, you know, less was more. It is, the song is still one of my all-time favorites. So one of my, I play, when I when I break it out once a year, it's like, yo, it's an oldie, but goodie. You play it, you're like, yo, I remember that joint. This shit is crazy. When I knew that you had the left brain and right brain thing was... I remember we were making Rough Riders Volume 1. First of all, I get it. You said Siobhan. Shout out to her. She's the COO of COO's boss. Uh, love her. She was the person who got every, made sure everything was done on time. But we, we were doing Rough Riders Volume 1. And I remember we had to drop it off for mastering. And you came, <laughs> you came to Interscope, like on 57th Street, Double Park, with a bunch of dats falling all over the place. And obviously, Jigga, My Nigga was one of those songs, but you had it all, it was like disorganized and super organized at the same time. But what I realized, you must have been 19, was that you were the producer, but you were dropping off the delivery of the entire album. And songs were coming from different people. You, You were basically running the show. And you were, you understood the urgency as a businessman to bring it all together, and that's when I knew that you um that's the first sign that I knew that you were a business person as well as obviously a, a creative. But tell me early on, tell great stories about when you first started making money. What did you do at that? <laughs> point? Let's talk about well, you. when you first started making publishing money. What did you do with that money? Well, you know, this is, this is, I said this story a couple of times, but it never gets old. Um, I remember going to ASCAP 
to get um to get this insurance card that they had. They had this insurance card that they want everybody, all the artists and supervisors to come get. And I remember going there and I remember seeing um, the young lady that used to always take care of me there. And she, you know, it's, I took like two buses, three trains to get there from the Bronx. I was still in the hood, heavy. And I remember going in there and I remember her energy was different. She was like, oh, Kasim, Swiss, how to bone. Like, I was just like, damn, like she in a real good ass mood. And she just kept like congratulating me and thanking me and congratulating me. But I'm just thinking it's because of like the music that I was putting out. And then she was like, yo, how does it feel to be rich? I said, what you talking about? Mm-hmm. And she was like, no, how does it feel to be rich? I'm like, I'm not rich. Like it, it took me like three hours to get here. I'm not rich. You know, I would have definitely took one of the African cabs to get down there with the light, with the nice music at that time. And she's like, no, I'm the one that's sending you checks. I said, what checks? She's like, you're publishing checks. I send you your checks. I'm like, those checks are real? So I had a shoebox with like 700,000 in it for like five months that I didn't even think there was real checks. I thought they was like, publishing Clarence House checks. My grandmother used to tell me to always put the checks in the shoebox. So I had all those checks in the shoebox this whole time. And mind you, I'm seeing D in the BM. I'm seeing Y. He and the, you know, they, everybody's starting to get nice things and different things like that. But I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know whether it was the streets or the music. You know what I'm saying? Cause they, my uncle, they mm-hmm. always, they always was fresh, but I just seen like an extra fresh start out of nowhere. Like mm-hmm. everybody just was with the face. And I just was like, man, that was crazy. So the first thing I did when I when I found out that money was real is what any black man coming up from the hood, coming from that would do. I went to the Benz dealership and tried to buy an S five hundred on a debit card. And I and I, I was I was so pissed because the dude wasn't taking me serious. I'm bra- I got braids in my hair. I'm baggied out. I probably had one of the things on me. I'm just in there with one of my guys and I'm thinking he's trying to play me like I don't got the money. So I'm like, oh, you trying to play me? I said, no, nah, I want this right now. I need this right now. I don't got no driver's license or nothing by the way. And so I go to the, I go to the, I go to the ATM and I print out the printout to show him, you know, I got like 800,000. I was like, see, I told you I got the money. What we doing? And he's like, I can't sell you the car on a, on a, on a, on a debit card. And then, um, Spoke to my grandfather and, 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 and then got with the financial advisor and then got my shit straight. But that was, uh, that was that. Now, when did you buy the Ansel Adams? Oh, I bought the Ansel Adams, uh, like, um, two or three years from that. So your appreciation for visual art was, you, you love Benz, you know, what was, you know, kitted out Benz. You love that. But at the same time, you had an appreciation for art simultaneously. Yeah, because I bought my first home in Jersey, um, three hundred thousand all cash, and then um, I wanted to put—I didn't want posters on my wall. I wanted to put art on my wall um, because it's just what you—it just felt like the right thing to do. I always had a love for art from growing up in the Bronx and just seeing Keith Herons and. 
Fab Five Freddy and all those, you know, Doze and Stay High, all those great uh, artists at that time. So I've always been into art. And then I just started going to galleries. You know, I just started going to galleries and um, I just couldn't understand why the, why, the, why the art was so expensive. Like, that's what, that's what was rocking me. I was like, man, they want like 50000 for this? They want 100000 for that? I didn't really understand it at that time. So I was uh, doing more learning, you know, just learning the ropes, like actually being very inquisitive. And I remember uh, Mr. David Rogaff, who was one of my mentors at that time, was taking the time out to explain to me the difference between a, a G clay, the difference between an artist proof, a trial proof, the reason why this Warhol um, series diamond dust is uh, better set than this set because it's matching numbers. You know, all of the stuff, you know, you had the Campbell Soup series as well. You know, just breaking down mm-hmm. all of those different nuances because the art world was different at that time than it is now. You know, it was only one african-american that we all knew about at that time and that was basket now uh mm-hmm. there's many so. so i want to transition to you love hip-hop obviously you embody it every ounce of it from the bx you have a deep appreciation for visual art these worlds are coming together you see the similarities obviously right they come from the same place at the same time um no permission they needed to be resourceful. You start no commission. I want to get into this. And it's 100% of the proceeds go to the artists. Talk to me about why no commission. What about visual art did you want to change? And what part of that change do you see that is uh, equally the same issue in the music business? (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, no commission is uh is 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 definitely my baby, and um, we're about to transition into uh, the part two platform of that. But what got me into no commission to start it was um, I was curating all these shows uh, in Miami, and I was lending my collection to different shows, and I was seeing how their audience was increasing. I was seeing how the communication of the fairs were increasing. I was seeing how the younger artists that were in my collection that nobody paid attention to started getting love. But then I also was seeing that a lot of artists I cared about in them shows uh, needed a ride home on a plane, needed a hotel room after they just sold like $500,000 worth of work you know, to the point where I couldn't even buy them and they work because it was sold out. I'm, I'm just like, damn, like you just sold out your show. Like you can't get home. You know, so it was like small things like that that just started to annoy me and irritate me. And then I'm, I just started to figure out like, damn, the galleries win, the fair win, the collector wins, but the artists kind of got to find their way home where we build in all of these big announcements and things about the artists, but it's not about the artists. You know, I was like, well, let's do a fair where it's 100% about the artists, Right. And for the first time, let the artists actually really be celebrated and keep 100% of their sales. And then also, let's create an entry point for the people that feel like art is only for rich people, because that's how they box a lot of our culture out, was by making it feel like we didn't have access to it. So in no commissions, you can get something for 30 bucks or 500000 you know? 
you can be a part of the conversation. But if you go around Durham Basu at this time when I'm thinking of this, if you didn't have 5,000 and up, 10,000, 20,000, and that's on the small shows, you wasn't, it wasn't no conversation to be had. So, Swiss, you are one of these most culturally curious people I've, I've ever met. Um, and we share that, we share that in our, in our conversations and our dialogue. In this example, is the gallery owner the equivalent of the record company? Yeah. So the gallery owners the record company. The artist makes the work. He gives it to a gallery. The gallery owner owns that the rights to sell that work. And whatever they sell it at, that's their money. And the artist walks away with only a portion of the proceeds. And in your case, you've seen not even enough to get home. I want to understand the, the, the relationship between the art business and the music business, if there is any, as you look at both of them? Well, for me, I think, the, I think music and art as brothers and sisters, and this is why I have a little bit of a, a problem because what make me different as a creative than Kehinde Wiley, right? And I'm going to tell you what makes me different mm-hmm. is that when I sell my track, I get paid enough money throughout the years where I can afford his art without even making no more music from that particular song that I'm getting paid on. He sells that art. That's, he don't participate no more, right? So I'm working on something that's called the Dean's Choice that's going to really help that issue. And, you know, I've been working with Sotheby's. I've been working with a couple of the auction houses because it's really... Um, so there's no royalty that, for them. They don't, they, don't get, they don't get continued... Yeah, it's just done. So, so just everybody out here in SelectCon, this is the art world. We, 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 you know, you, you come, United Masters, you hear a lot about the music business. I want to go, Swiss is talking about art right now. He's saying that these artists make their work. They sell it one time. They can sell it one time for $10,000. That thing could sell 10 years later for $50 million. They don't see a nickel. Zero. Zero. I don't feel good. I don't sit. That don't sit good with me. I don't like it. It don't sit good with me. And um, we're going to change it. I just don't like it. Even if it was 5%, I'm cool, but something. You know what I mean? Like, it's, 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 you know, I just don't like it. You know, um, especially right now where African-American artists are, are breaking a lot of records, you know. Um, well, you were a big part of that, Swiss. Swiss, you play the I know. And, I mean, yeah. And I'm, I'm happy to be a part of it, but I also want to fix the part of it that um that needs to be fixed, you know, and that's the part right there. You know, like if, if Henry Taylor or Kahinde, like these auctions that just happened today and yesterday, you know, I like that the value is going up and their next shows will show that value. The next shows will show the value because they'll say, oh, this sold at X, Y, and Z for auction, so I can up my price a hundred thousand or fifty thousand or eighty thousand. I like that part, but I just feel that um, it should. We should be way, way, way ahead of that part. You know, it's it's twenty twenty. Like, like, what are we talking about? So, I think you've 
I think you're 100% correct on that. And, uh, you know, you've certainly been the bridge, the connector between hip-hop culture and the visual art world. Um, And when I, you know, just to reference to everybody, when I said Swiss has been a big part of that, um, you know, there was a Kerry James Marshall, who's a very famous artist, whose works sold for $21 plus million in uh, our own Sean Diddy Combs bought that work, and Swiss was his right hand, helping guiding him through that. And that was a very important. Uh, that was a very important moment when we look back in art history because it was the highest selling living African American artist living um, price. And the it fact lived. of the matter is that that yeah it still is, and that rolls boats to everybody. That rolls everybody's value and. And brought the right attention to that. Swiss. Yeah, that, moving day, right that day along. was a game changer. That day was a oh, game changer. It was a celebration. It was a celebration. Yeah, we went crazy that day. It was a it was a celebration. Um Swiss. So you got everybody. I mean, you got, you know, Grammy Awards and you work with Kanye, you work with Hove, you work with you you built the label, all the things that you've done. As a creative artist, why did you go to Harvard? Why did you go to Harvard in your in your thirties? Because I wasn't I wasn't as smart as I thought I was. How you did know, you know um, that? No, we're gonna break Swiss. We're gonna break this down. There are people watching this. They're looking at you. They want to be the next week's beats. How did you know the self awareness that you were not as smart as you thought you were? I was making a lot. Um, well, one I was doing, I was doing mergers and acquisitions uh, with different companies based on the relationships that I had. And I remember going into those meetings endlessly, excited about the partnership, excited about the money I'm gonna make from it. But when I would walk in that room, whether I had a suit on, no jewelry, no diamonds. Kasim Deem on my name tag, they just always put me back in this box of like being a, 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 a musician from the Bronx, whether it's Grammy nominated or whatever you want to call it. Why I couldn't just be Kasim Deem in that room? You know, they would only talk about like musical things. And I'm like, this is not a musical conversation we're having about this company or period. And, um, mm-hmm. First, the first thing that hit me was what we like to use in our culture a lot is the race car. It's like, oh, they doing that because I'm black. And then I just didn't want, I just didn't want that to be an excuse. So I started asking uh, some other people um, why they think that was happening. And one of my friends who's super, super big person said, Swiss, it's, I don't think it's a I don't think it's a, a, a racial thing. I think that they know that you don't understand the language, so they don't want to offend you. So they're they're talking about things that that you can comprehend, and that shit Ooh. just made so much you lost sense your to shit. me. What? Like I I can't I, I and by the way I was in the air when I was having this conversation. And he said, he said, you know, there's a class that you can take um, 
It's called OPM, Owners, President, Management. It's at Harvard. It's a very hard class to get in. But you should try it. This, 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 this will help you with your situation. I called Monique from the plane. And I was like, look up everything for this class immediately. Um, Harvard turned me down three times. You know, on the last last uh, time I tried, they turned it down and then they called back in two hours and said that a spot opened up. And uh, to get in this class, you had to be a part of a, a company uh, that earns 300 and something million a year. So at this time, I was a shareholder in Monster Electronics. Um, at that time, I was the only shareholder besides uh, outside shareholder at that time which made me eligible to, to, to take this owner's president management class. That class was amazing. The three years I did was, was super amazing, but I took another class called Launching New Ventures was only three weeks. Now that class, that's where I built no commissions from. That's where I built the, the layout for the Dean collection. That's where I built, you know, the, 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 the thought behind versus the way that we're doing things. That's, that's the, that right there, that class showed me a lot. But going back to yeah. the mission. So, so hold on one second. I'm sorry. I got to just. He's telling everybody everything. I mean, you, I got goosebumps. You're telling everybody everything. You're not hiding it like they hid it from yeah. you, like they hid it from me. We got to give it all. Yeah. I remember Jay said something years ago, man. He was on 106 in Park and he says, my job is to open the door and leave it open so everybody can come in. That's what you're doing right now. I love doing that. Say the class again, Swiss. Say the class again. What's the class in Launching. three weeks that got you lit? Lit. It's called Launching New Ventures. And if you want to warm up before Launching New Ventures, you get a book called The Lean Startup. It shows you how to start your business up and be lean about it and, and, and give you great examples. So, Read the lean startup and then go online and see how you can apply for launching. Just warm, just warm, just warm, just warm up the this microwave oven. The, the, yeah, the just warm it up. Get the, <laughs> just get in mode, you know. <laughs> yeah. Get in mode on the ass. I get it and I understand. So you you and you come out of that, and you now have everything that you've done. You don't lose an ounce of your creativity, obviously. And now you're applying business acumen at the highest level. And you're walking in those same rooms. What's happening now when you walk in those rooms, Swiss? Well, first of all, I got kicked out of every school in the Bronx, which is why I had to migrate to Atlanta and had a hard time there. It never was for academic reasons. It was just uh, street reasons and just, you know, the lay of the land, but to be able to complete OPM and then also have a case study done on me um, was a, was a true blessing because you know they're now teaching my story in, in Harvard um, to to the masses, and I never thought that you know my life can be taught to other students at a school like that or in a school period because my life wasn't. It didn't start out as the best thing, you know, and that's why I always say sky is not the limits, it's just the view. You know, why should the skies be our limits? You know, there's footprints on the moon. They want you to think the sky is the limits, but 
come on, man. You know, like they, we know that there's other worlds out there and we have to explore those things, you know. Um, so before we get to the next question, I just wanted to just say that part right there. So what's the goal here is for you, honestly, you know, my biggest thing is I went to five different colleges and dropped out of five different colleges. And, um, I, you know, I feel like, you know, as a regular, as regular can get, but it was, you know, things I've learned through life experiences and being told no and going through the crash course that hip hop provided me that's taught me resourcefulness and the things that I know now. And I feel like everybody has that opportunity in front of them. I, I, at least I want to believe that. I, I want to really believe that. Um, and formalized education is fantastic, but nothing beats understanding the value of resourcefulness. Nothing. I remember when I first started my business, I'd say to people, you know, you know what to do. Just make it happen. I used to hear Andre Harrell say that all the time. The late, great Andre Harrell yeah. say, make it happen. And I'm like, I understand exactly what that means. But I know when yeah. you say that to certain people, they look at you with a confused face like it's an incomplete sentence. And I'm like, that's a complete thought. Make it happen is a complete thought. You're saying you made it happen. You got told on the plane, the disrespect was real. real. Somebody told you a class about Harvard, you got turned down three times, and you figured it out. And you figured it out. Now, <clears throat> I want to get the verses, because you had this idea for many, many years. And I remember talking to you about this idea, and you know, the world wasn't ready for it. The creatives, their pride. They, you, you wanted it always to be a cele celebration of an art form. They always wanted to see it as a competition. You would keep saying it was a celebration. They kept saying it was a competition. The word versus was almost confusing. They didn't understand what you really meant by it. Yeah. Two years ago. Two years ago. Yeah. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I remember when you first, and I was talking about this, when you first went against Just Blaze, Timbaland, I was like, you know, I'm a Tim As a producer, I think he's outrageous. I'm like, Swiss, you're a talented man. I love you. To <laughs> you're going to the end of the pool, guy. <laughs> this guy... <laughs> Puts three changes in the beat. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just love the fact that you and Timbaland are working together. Um, but when you guys did that and the pandemic hit, you guys did that, the pandemic hit. What was running through your mind with that idea in the pandemic? Did, it, did you connect it like this is the moment? No, not out the gate. Not out the gate. Because it's during that time. You had it for a year before that. What made it, you put the gas on right there? The people put the gas on it right there, you know? The fact that me and Tim went live with no promotions right then and there, 
um, Tim kind of like egged, it, egged me on. He started playing beats and, you know, kind of like challenging me, you know, to get back in the versus spirit. And then I got back in the versus spirit. And then not even an hour later, we was on live and with 30,000 people. So that time, 30,000 people on live was a lot of people. You know, it wasn't um, like that was huge. Then we was like, damn, we got 30,000 people, you know, because Instagram live wasn't really made for the masses. It was made for friends to chat. It wasn't made for what we're doing now, which is why it crashed the time that it did with, uh, when we did it, you know, when we when we continued to do it. But um, you guys, you yeah. guys... A few legendary times. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. A few legendary times. But, you know, you know the, the thing that I love about Versus is, um, you know, you can go back and see me and Kanye on stage in, in 2006. Like Summer Jam. Summer Jam. Yeah, yeah. Summer Jam. I always felt that the producers needed to celebrate, and Versus gave us a chance to have the writers and producers celebrate uh, in the beginning. And... um. You know, a lot of the writers and the producers, when we started doing it and it started getting moving, a lot of them wanted to go a different direction, which made us switch to the uh, artists as quick as we did. You know, now the writers and producers are, are really understanding uh, verses and the verses effect. Why, Swiss? Really Why did the... So, so let's take our time with this. Um, <laughs> no, no, we're going to take our time with it. I'm not going to let you just get to that. The, the writers and the producers, the, the producers always should, I say the producers, you know, the producers are the therapists for artists. I feel like when you got it, when a, when a relationship, when a producer and an artist have a great relationship, the producers like their therapists. They talk to you about everything. You have to unearth it all. And then that's how you make the joints. That's how you make confessions. That's how you make these you know, and, and, you know, women would tell you their hairstylist is their therapist. Like you, you know, people in your life that to get the best out of them, it requires a connection that's at a higher level. Yeah. And the art of a producer is to get in there and do that. So now you want to celebrate these people. Was it because you're a producer you believe that producers initially were like, uh, I could do this, or you and Tim, like maybe. What, what was the you said, everyone should have been doing this no, there was nobody shining a light on these dudes people didn't even know what Sean Garrett looked like outside the industry as an example Jante Austin I've known him since he was 13 years old no one knew who this man was playing them joints why were you no getting these they definitely know now they definitely know now he's a great young man why Swiss well, you know, I think, um, and I'm, I'm going to keep it all the way a thousand. Um, it's all, uh, being a producer has always been a, consp- a competitive sport. You know, it always been competitive. Me and Tim are super cool, but I can tell you that me and him were very competitive with each other. You know, um, me and Jess Blaze, ultra competitive with each other. And I think that once we started taking off and it started taking off, you know, a lot of people was thinking that it was going to only be up to them for us to keep moving the way that we was moving, you know? So, and I'm not going to really harp on it, but like a lot of people was acting like suckers. You know what I'm saying? Like a lot of people was just being selfish 
and they was acting like suckers and not really being about what they say they about when it was coming to the smoke, although they was promoting the smoke, or they, they although they was talking mess about the smoke, they telling other people how they supposed to do the smoke. And then, you know, when it comes to them, they got all the excuses in the world. So mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to take it personal, but I'm going to keep it real. And so me and Tim was like, yo, we're just going to keep it dancing, you know? And what's meant to happen on Versus will happen. You know, the universe is in control of this anyway. You know, so I'm not, we're not forcing anybody to do anything. The thing that you said there that, that, that stands out to me is you're pushing the culture forward and people are scared of competition. They don't realize what they realize when you look back at it. Nobody lost. Everybody won. Nobody, nobody lost. And that's what we, and that's that's what we try that to tell everybody. Nobody lost. But you There's did no something big like eyes and little use. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm going to come out. You did something like a tech company. You failed fast. You guys did a couple big. Then you went and did the one with Ryan uh, uh, Tedder and I forget the other kid. It didn't work. It didn't work at the mass numbers that you think. And you got out of that and you went back again. And not everything is for everybody. Failing well, let fast. Me, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me give you a point on that one. Um, mm-hmm. We, we never curated that one. And Ryan Tedder and them were super friends of ours. And I respect their work. They kind of like... Awesome. Yeah, and and, and, and they should have went crazy. But they did jump in line with it. And then, you know, being that Tim side of it was more of a pop side. And he comes from that. And we then did verses that I asked to be done with hip-hop, with RZA and, and, and with RZA and, uh, and DJ Command thing. So I was like, with Primo... And so I just felt like it was only I was I, I had to be a good partner and, and honor Tim's wishing in doing that because they was gonna do it anyway. So Tim was like, "Yo, they gonna do it," and and like they, you know, what I'm saying like they got a big audience, so we might need to have them just they might have to put the verses on there and show us the respect. So I was like, "All right, whatever you want to do," but that's not no, on, something I would so I wouldn't have did that one yet. So, so, so I just want to say this: this is important. My only point here is the following. I get out of that. So, entrepreneurs, you got a partner. You believe that your partner's idea is not going to work. That's your partner. 50-50 partner. Your partner gives it a shot. It doesn't work. You move on. You don't look back. You move on. That's what relationships are about. That's what partnerships are about. And that's the one thing from entrepreneurs build companies together, you're going to always do that. You're going to test. You're going to fail fast. You're going to learn. That's my only point there. Not the fact and that I, Ryan and I, and I promoted it. Right and I promoted it as well. I didn't, I didn't just leave it yeah. by itself, but it, I promoted it too. Like, yo, we're going to stand behind it. Let's stand behind it. Yeah. And then you go, boom, right into Jamaica. And I know Tim really well. That's not his bag. He trusts you. You go right into that bag. Boom. Home run. These are how these things work. This is how you build great companies. Swiss, I just got to tell you, you and Timberland have done so much to bring life and energy back to Catalog in the record business. The, the record business has moved into a frontline business. You know, anything that came out in the last 18 months goes like this. Things longer than that. 
slow. You guys are bringing back moments, memories, feelings to the catalog and reminding people the great music that they grew up on, the great music that provided them memories and things in their teenage years or their 20s that helped shift their lives, got them out of some key moments. And that's the one thing from Versus that I got out of it. But, but more importantly, why I wanted to sit, have this fireside chat with you is because if you follow when you started this story, coming back at 16 to New York, banned from TV, haters on the Casio, to the phone call on the plane, to Harvard, to art, and to verses. When you look at yourself and you look at that climb, tell me what you want to tell every young, creative rapper, singer, songwriter, producer. What do you want them to get from that story? Man, you know, life begins at the end of your comfort zone. You know, we I could have easily been... Um, cool as a DJ. That's where I would have stopped. I could have easily been cool as a producer, Grammy Award winning producer. That's where it could have stopped. Or I could have been curious of the world. Notice I said world because a lot of people think America is the world. America is a place in the world. You know, I think that my travels and, and my openness, open mind, being open-minded to be curious just about everybody else's culture, what's happening, what's working, what's not working. I think that gives me a lot of advantages when I come back home. And a lot of people might not be able to get on a flight, but everybody got a phone and everybody got a computer. So you can mentally go on that flight and find out things that's going on and, and see what interests you and see low hanging fruit. See what, you know, people think I'm laughed at me for, for, for having a camel racing team, you know, in the next three to five years, they're going to understand, you know, what that meant, you know, being the first American and African-American to ever own a camel racing team. It's something I enjoy. I thought it was fun. And it's a part of culture. It's just that we're not taught that side of culture. You understand? That side of culture was happening mm -hmm. in Africa, Egypt, and all these different places. But we're not taught to celebrate and love those things um, from the Middle East and, and from Africa and those different areas. We're taught to speak negativity and stay away from that. You know, me, I like to be on ground and go see certain places in Africa uh, go see places in the Middle East, go traveling, be in places that I know people are not even going to want to go and come back with the goods, you know, and come back with the knowledge and say, no, you know what? You should probably check this out. You should probably check that out and just keep the palate, your palate just fresh, you know, like nobody want to, I can't do the same thing every day. Like, I want to just have fresh ideas because my mind is, my mind is, um, is very, very, it's on a very serious, like you see what it just did to your screen, you know, like that's that's how my mind looks, like 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 the screen right now, you know. So, um, I just put that energy there, and it just froze your screen. So I just, <laughs> man, I really I really blanked that blanked out Steve's screen. But anyway, ladies and gentlemen, um, just always follow your dreams, and don't be scared to do things that maybe nobody believes in. You might be the first and only person to believe in something that, that's a great idea. 
a thousand people might not say it's cool. If you feel it's cool, try it. You know, sky's not the limits, it's just the view. Zone, zone, zone. Blessings. And first of all, thank you so much for taking the time out. I know you you building, you rocking and rolling, taking the time out to give the gift of information to all the people out here who registered for SelectCon. This, I mean, this is this is on Twitch, man. This is a lot of people watching this right now. And it's and it, it's all for free. It's all giving people the education you gave of yourself. You gave a lot of yourself. And I appreciate that. That's what this is all about. Uh, so thank you for that. And I am, you know, I tell you all the time how proud I am, how proud I am of you. And, you know, it's, I say that as a person, um, not because I'm slightly older than you or older than you, but because I've watched your growth as a man from that kid dropping off the, dat, the dats of the, the Rough Rider album to, you know, being this guy today that is respected in every part of this earth, everything you've contributed to help shift in the world, man. So congratulations to you and God bless. Thank you. Blessings to you. And thank you for always being the voice and being the man behind the scenes. I always tell you to like get in front of the scenes, but you know, your humility keeps you at a, at a space that, um, that many would never do, you know, and I've watched you the same way you watched me. I've watched you behind the scenes of, the biggest. I've seen the work you've done with Jay. I've seen the work you've done with LeBron. I've seen you the work that you've done with your label and 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 and, and taking artists to the next level. And even this talk right here and your endless work and you know and and, and just always being there from the kid and play days to now sitting here talking about verses. So congratulations to your growth, United Masters, and everything that you have going on. It's super huge. Your agency. You know, for you to have the agency as African American owned to be uh, the number one leading in the business, every since even you know way before people even understood what that mean when you did the uh, the AI and Jada Kiss commercial, we can go on and on and on. So I could reverse this whole thing and interview you, you next. So you know, yeah. I you know I, I, I <laughs> thank you so much, man. It's very kind. Wish you and your family really well. Uh, blessings to you, brother. Thank you, thank you. Cheers to better years. <laughs> <laughs>